From KIOS and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I'm talking with acclaimed actor Derek Silkman, who has starred in films such as Stuck on Neil, Endor, and most recently, the award-winning short film The Headliner, in which Silkman plays a seasoned comedian. I think I just, I, I remember telling myself that morning, just approach it like a scene. You're playing a scene, and the audience is your scene partner. Yeah. You know, you just gotta, because they're working with you, you know. So that's how I approached it. I, I tried to not dwell too much on the fact that I was doing stand-up for the first time. My guests Derek Silkman and director Tony Bonacci are currently developing the headliner into a feature film that they intend to shoot in Nebraska. Stick around after the break for my conversation with Derek Silkman about his evolution as an actor and his upcoming projects right here on Riverside Chats. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything. How we work, how we interact, how we move around or don't, and how we deal with being caught up in that change, which is happening really fast. So to help you process it all, we have started a new podcast, a way for you to get the latest news and science on the pandemic, because we think being informed is the best way to get through this thing. So every weekday, you will hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the virus, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. In about 10 minutes, NPR will give you what you need to know about this fast-moving story. We're calling it Coronavirus Daily. You can find new episodes right here every weekday afternoon. Hello? Wanna be a Munchie Boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synth it's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we need to. Yeah. It sounds like haha. Check out Munchie Boys it's on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. That's what happens. Munchie, Munchie, Boys. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with acclaimed actor Derek Silkman. Silkman got his start in theater, including local performances of Angels in America and years working with Nebraska Shakespeare, before emerging as a major screen presence in Nebraska filmmaking with the feature Bent Over Neil, which would get re-edited as Stuck on Neil, and is now a streaming series called Stuck. He also starred in the horror film Endor, before his latest work, The Headliner, directed by Tony Bonacci which played at the Omaha Film Festival, the Filmstream's local filmmaker showcase, and won Best Narrative Short at the Lincoln Short Film Festival. The headliner is currently being developed into a feature that Bonacci intends to shoot in Nebraska, also starring Derek Silkman. Here is my conversation with the man himself, Derek Silkman. 
I remember seeing, I think I was just checking Showtimes, and it came out right around the time my first movie came out. And I think I remember immediately being like, who are these other guys making a local movie? What's this all about? Uh, but then I watched the trailer, and it just like immediately the character is very endearing. Uh, and it's just like, okay, well, this guy seems charming. These, these, these guys seem like they know what they're doing enough. Maybe I shouldn't harbor grudges immediately. Right. Um, <laughs> and well, then, so I, I talked to Faustus. I did an interview with him years ago. And uh, you've been doing a lot of different sorts of acting, right? Like uh, Bent Over Neal was maybe even a little bit different from some of the acting you've done in the past. Yeah, I hadn't done much film before that. I'd done some little projects here and there, but that was probably the first. Um, th- that was the first film I'd done that I had that big of a role in, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've, my training comes from the theater. I have right. a bachelor's degree in theater. I have a master's degree in theater. So I've, I've spent a lot of time on the stage. Well, it, I, did, did, I, did Faustus tell me you did uh, like Shakespearean work as well? I, was, uh, I regularly worked with Nebraska Shakespeare right, slash yeah. Shakespeare on the Green for about five years. And yeah. so I don't take this the wrong way, but just the, the sense I get from the characters I've seen you play, maybe not Endor so much, but like, you know, the Neil types or even the headliner. It's like you've got sort of this easy, sort of familiar, conversational, uh, sort of casual sort of acting approach and it's you know I guess it, it feels very everyman in a way that Shakespeare does not like it's hard for me to picture you doing <laughs> Shakespeare yeah well it's funny because when I was doing Shakespeare in theater in general I, I tended to get cast as the bad guy actually because <laughs> yeah. of his voice and my size and, right. um, uh, luckily in film I've been able to explore other types of characters like the ones you you just mentioned but again uh, when I was doing Shakespeare I played Claudius and Hamlet I played Tybalt and uh, Romeo and Juliet, I played Don John and Much Ado About Nothing, all the big bad guys. Do you have any of that in your mind still? Oh, heavens no. That no. was so long ago. <laughs> I just like, I want to hear you do a Shakespearean line. I should have. I should have brought um, some text with me. If, yeah. if, I, if I pull some up right now. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I can do it for you. <laughs> well, okay. So let's go way back to the beginning then. Are you from Omaha originally? No, I grew up in Kansas. Kansas, A uh, small okay. town called Concordia, Kansas. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, were you like a theater nerd as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. When I, I, I think I started doing theater when I was in junior high. Okay. And got the bug early and uh, all through high school. That was kind of my thing. I didn't play sports. I didn't uh, do any of those other extracurricular activities. I, I was... Um, I was 100% a theater student. Was that a popular thing to do, or was it kind of like an outcast? Uh, if I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> you, you were oblivious to <laughs> if it. If I was an outcast, nobody told me. <laughs> well, but you, you seem, you know, you got like a charming, outgoing nature. Were you like that as a kid? I, I don't know. You'd have to ask wow, the people okay. I went to school with. You were just focused, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. So, I mean, like, what were what were some of the first shows you were seeing where that, you know, you even felt like you wanted to be a part of it? I think that goes all the way back to when I was in grade school yeah. um, in a really small town in Kansas, uh, Sylvan Grove, Kansas. Okay. And, the, I mean, it was really small. It had a population of, like, 300. Yeah. And uh, every year, I think the juniors and the seniors would put on a play, and they'd bus us up to the high school to watch them. And I, I – um, I remember being really drawn to it back in those days. Was it like the glory of being celebrated on the stage or? I think it was the illusion, you know, that drew me to it. Because I had seen, you know, it was just the high school auditorium and we'd go up there for other things like concerts and and things like that. But the way that they transformed that space um, was fascinating to me. You know, it looked lived in like that. (laughs) I, I couldn't believe it was the same space that I had seen before. Right. Um, and to see actors like living in it and filling up that space, um, uh, 
that, I think that was what drew me to it initially. And you could buy into it. Like the artifice of it didn't. I mean, because a lot of people are off off put by plays just because there is an artificial element that's easy to notice with it, unless you can get yourself in that headspace. But you were able to sort of buy into it immediately. I guess I like I knew it was a really small town, so I knew all those <laughs> students who were acting in it, every single one of them. So yeah. I don't know that I got that immersed in it. Like I knew they were playing make believe, sure. but I've still found it fun. It was fun, okay. yeah. And so you wanted to have a part of that fun as well. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Were you drawn to comedies initially, or did it matter? I don't remember. I don't. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So, Back in those days, I'm 47, <laughs> yeah. so you're talking like 40 years ago. That's true. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me questions about that, I don't know if I'd know even. And right. I'm younger, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So okay, so you end up in theater. Uh, were you also kind of like a book nerd? Um, not until later. Um, I teach English too, right, yeah. so That's yeah. I um, I, 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 that didn't come until later. Okay. Um, probably after uh, I graduated from college. And uh, decided to uh, go to graduate school as an English student. Um, I think that was when I became a little bit of a book nerd. Well, but, I mean, like doing stage work, I feel like you do get sort of decently well-read or you're kind of around almost some of those elements of English study. Yeah, some of them. Um, more on the on the dramatic literature right. end, yeah. mature. Yeah, uh, like even you know to to understand Shakespeare is something that you know a lot of people. I, I feel like there's an easy. It's easier to study Shakespeare if you've I'm sure acted Shakespeare. You know. Yeah, um, it, it with Shakespeare it's interesting because I, a lot of people are intimidated by it, but um, I think that uh, for me anyway, the more I did it, the more I I um, got familiar with that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this started what I'm about to talk about. This started before I was in, uh, b- before I was acting in Shakespeare. What I would do when I got assigned those texts that were difficult for me to understand, I'd get the cliff notes and I would use them in in um, in a non-cheating manner. I would like uh, put them on one side and put the the actual text on another, and I would read them simultaneously. And they they sell that now, don't they? Isn't that literally the way that I mean? It's like No Fear Shakespeare or something, I think it is. Is that what they do? They put the real text on one side and the... I've seen that, yeah. Really? I've never seen that. You were ahead of the curve. You should have started selling it earlier. I should have. been a company. Right, yeah, because it works. You know, if you read it simultaneously, a lot of people use it to cheat, but if you don't use it to cheat, they can really (laughs) help you um, uh, get an insight to that type of of language. Sure. And I found after a while I didn't need them anymore. You know, you you taught yourself. Yeah, well, you start to learn that language just like you do any language, I suppose. Right. Yeah. So, like, okay, so did you go to high school in the small town? Yeah. Okay. And were you doing plays? Yep. Were there any ones that stood out or were especially influential for you? In high school? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) Oh, let's see. We did a – I got my first lead as a sophomore in high school. That's impressive. This was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, usually the leads went to the juniors or seniors. I got one as a sophomore, and it was in a play called Foxfire. Okay. I don't know that one. uh, It was written by Hume Cronin, if you know who that is. Begley, yeah. He was married to Jessica Tandy. Okay. And the – the film version starred both of them. I would assume the stage version did, too, but I'm not sure. Um, so that one stands out to me because it was my first lead. Did you have your deep voice at that age? I think I did. So that probably helped. I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to gravitas to you. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, I remember when I first heard the voice, like in the Bent Over Neil trailer, I thought, uh, okay, it's like Thomas Hayden Church, maybe. Oh, God, I get that. You get that a lot, I would assume. All the time, yeah. yeah. When I waited tables, I would get that every single day. So does that annoy you? Nah, it used to. It doesn't anymore. I've kind of embraced it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a funny story about that. When I was at K State, which is where I got my bachelor's, some of the theater students there started calling me Lowell because Wings was popular at the time, and that's who uh, Thomas Hayden Church played. And when that show finally went off the air, I was like, thank God. But it was only, what, two years later that uh, Sideways, Sideways came yeah. out. And everybody was like, you got to go see this movie. There's a guy. And I was like, really? And I went, and I was like, oh, Christ. It's... <laughs> he's back, and he yeah. got an Academy Award nomination. And now he's not going anywhere. Well, now you're in Nebraska, of course. So everyone's seen Sideways. Yeah. Alexander yeah. Payne. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, okay, so you went to college in Kansas then? Yeah, Kansas State. And you studied theater? I did. So was the intention there to become a professional actor? Yeah. It was at the time, okay. yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, what what, did, what was that like? Was that an easy choice for you to make? When I was in college? Yeah. Uh, it, it was intimidating, actually. You know, I mean, I came from a small town where I was kind of like one of the one of the really good actors, and right. that was a really competitive program. In, at Kansas? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, most of the people that I went to school with there are, make, are working professionally as actors now. Okay. Uh, one of which is Eric Stone Street from, oh, okay. uh, from um, Modern Family, if yeah. you've ever watched that. That's impressive. He and I were at K-State together, so that's that's – the <laughs> that's the level of uh, competition I was facing at Kansas State. It was intimidating. But like, I'm sure a lot of people from your town in Kansas were not, uh, you know, professional theater going types, or they weren't like the type who necessarily aspired, aspired to artsy sort of careers. Did they? Um, there might have been a few yeah. um, that I knew in high school who did. A lot of them probably ended up teaching, like I did. Sure. Um, but yeah, there was some. Was there pushback, like from your family or anything? No, they were surprisingly supportive. <laughs> they weren't like, eh, you know, make a backup as well, you know, double major. They did suggest that, and um, I think they were happy when I went back to school and studied English. But, yeah. um, you know, that sounds secure, but it's not. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when you did it in college then, was it, I mean, what kind of program is it? Is it just like you study, you take a lot of different classes, or was it like a classical training, or what, what did it look like? The one at Kansas State? Yeah. I was just very well-rounded. Okay. Um, you know, there were different uh, acting classes that we took that were different styles. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, there were some dramatic literature courses. Um, they wanted us to get a good handle on technical theater as well, so we had to you know, take uh, classes in scenic design and lighting design and costume design and things like that. Um, I didn't perform very well in those classes. <laughs> I wish I would have because that's uh, um, those are good skills to fall back on. You were sure. talking about falling back earlier. That's what a lot of smart theater people do is they get good at those things. So if the acting thing doesn't work out, they can still uh, work in the theater just in a different way. Theater is kind of a, in a weird spot where it just seems like there it's maybe a small portion who really, truly get into it and appreciate it. I mean, like every city or town seems to have a, a portion but it's not like it's not the same as movies or tv has become i mean yeah. was, was it hard for you to have that love specifically of theater i mean because it seems like that's what you were chasing right uh yeah yeah i mean i don't think i ever didn't want to do film but yeah i was studying theater and that was the that was the main goal i mean if i would have moved to a big theater town i think i would have moved to chicago or new york before i would have moved to la um, did, did you ever consider that mm-hmm Considered it. Didn't happen. (laughs) What stopped you? I don't know. Just life, I guess. Uh, You know, things happen along the way that just kind of shoot you down a different direction. Yeah. And so right after you graduate from undergrad, what was the plan? 
I moved to Kansas City for a couple years okay. um, and was going to try to do the professional theater thing. And uh, I got a little impatient. I got down there right before audition season and I, uh, I went to all the, yeah, it, it's like a four month window, I think, if I remember correctly. And I went to all the auditions and I didn't get called back for anything. I was a new guy in town, you know, and I waited a year. And I uh, was going to do it again, which I did. And then I got called back to every theater in town, but didn't get cast in anything. What was, was the change that you were not new anymore? I think so. And some of, like, I, I had networked a little bit. Mm-hmm. I had some friends down there that I went to college with who uh, helped me with that, you know, helped me meet some people. And uh, I think that's what it was. But I still didn't get cast in anything. And I think that was when I was like, I need to go back to school. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's very seniority based. Like, if you just stuck around for year three, would you have gotten some roles? I went down to visit, and I bumped into one of the artistic directors of one of the theaters down there, and he told me that would have been the case. He said, if you would have stuck around another year, you'd have started getting roles. It's kind of, isn't that like an annoying facet of so many creative things? It's just like, well, if you're around long enough, it seems like they'll throw things your way. Yeah, but at the same time, I think from their perspective, they want to trust the people that they hire. Sure. You know, you don't want to cast an actor who ends up being a flake. You don't want to cast an actor who ends up not being that good. You know, because then the quality of your show suffers. So That's true. I, I get it from their end. Right. Yeah. So, okay, it's year three. What do you decide to do then? I, I come back. I move up here. My parents were living in Council Bluffs. Oh, okay. And, they, and I talked to them about going back to school. And they said, well, if you want to go back to school, you can live with us. So that seemed like a safe bet. So <laughs> I lived in Council Bluffs and uh, and uh, um, applied to go to graduate school in the English department at UNO. So English was that that was consciously like okay uh, this will be sort of a career shifting move yeah okay <laughs> and so I assume you got in right <laughs> you went I, there I did when I first got there though they told me that I had to um, because my grades weren't all that good in undergrad uh, for one thing and because um, because I didn't have an English degree as an undergrad they wanted me to make up some deficiencies so they said. Uh, they said, I tell you what, this was the graduate chair of the department at the time. He said, if you take 12 hours of lit in one semester, which is a lot, that's mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of reading. <laughs> he said, if you take 12 hours of lit and you get a beer above in all those classes, we'll let you in. You did it? How did it go that year? I got a, I got my first 4.0 ever, <laughs> ever. Was that like you were motivated? You were into it? Yeah. In some way? Okay. Yeah. I feel like that's the biggest difference. Like when you're in college, it's so hard when you're at that age to actually just want to learn all the information that's being thrown at you. Yeah, yeah. And probably 26 is a good age where it's like, okay, I actually am curious about all this. Right, and if you're taking classes that you really want to take, too, that's a big difference between graduate school and undergrad is you don't have to right. take all, you know, if you're an English person, you don't have to take physics and you don't right. have to take algebra and you don't have to take biology. It's all English. So. Right, yeah. So, I mean, okay, when you're, when you're done with that, then you start grad school. And it almost, I imagine grad school in some ways might have felt like uh, less of a class load, you know, a little bit easier in some ways. Yeah, I only took two classes at a time. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you're working then? Uh, I I got an assistantship. I started oh, teaching nice. okay. while I was in graduate school in the English department at UNO. Did you find much of an overlap between your stage work and teaching? The funny thing is I think my stage work improved because I started teaching. Why is that? Yeah. I, I, I think just being more comfortable. Um, 
learning how to handle uh, being a little bit nervous. You know, you oftentimes go into class back in those days, not prepared at all. Right. And learning to keep my cool. <laughs> That's know? the funniest thing about the, the newest teachers when they think they have to like script out their entire lesson or something. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. Like that. And I was the same way. Yeah. Right, I don't yeah. do that anymore, but I used to. Well, just like, you don't have that, that trust that you will come up with something. Right. You're like I have nothing in there. I don't right. know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then at some point, you're like, yeah, you do just go in and you're like, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today, but we'll figure something out. Right. right. Um, well, okay. So, I mean, you apply that to, uh, was, is it like that freedom or that trust of yourself then that sort of was able, you were able to apply to your acting? I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Were you still thinking about acting at this point? Or uh, well, it? I started acting again while I was getting that master's oh, okay, degree okay. in so English. In yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, it was my second year. Um, I auditioned for the two shows that they were doing at UNO, and I was just like, I want to do this. And the funny thing is, one of them was a musical, and I'm not a musical guy, but I got cast in a big role in the musical. <laughs> you had to sing, I <laughs> yes, assume? and dance, and I don't dance well at all. How'd that turn out? I think it went pretty well. I think it went pretty well. <laughs> I, I had a situation when I was in high school. There was this girl that I liked who asked me. She needed an audition partner, and so I was not an actor at all. I'm still not an actor, really, and so... Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go. And she gets cast as, you know, like in the background of one scene. And then I got a major supporting role. And, yeah, I had to sing and I had to dance. Yeah. Was, well, luckily, they cast me as the old guy. So it's like, yeah, he's not really good at any of it. So uh, oh you don't have to be good at dancing or singing. <laughs> you can have a raspy voice. It's fine. Kind of fake it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that kind of worked out. But, yeah, that's that's an overwhelming. It's like, oh, there's a lot of skills that I was not prepared for. Right. Either. Yeah, I felt the same way when I did that show. Yeah. And yeah, I, they had to really, like, simplify the dance for me. Because I couldn't dance. Yeah. Like, I was so um, close. Clumsy and and not graceful at all. Dancing's tough. Yeah. So I mean, was that? Did you learn some skills from just being immersed in that that continued to help you? Or well, I had taken some voice lessons uh, for a couple years, which I was glad of. You know, that, I think that was the reason I got that um, got that role was because of my audition. I had to sing for the audition. What'd you sing? Oh, goodness, what did it? It was a song from Camelot, Same Wah. That's what it was. It was Lancelot's solo, nice. Same Wah from Camelot. Yeah, but I think that's what got me the role. But yeah. we, did, we didn't really have – I don't remember if we had to dance in the audition or not. I, I'm surprised to hear you say that you're not an actor. You, you've I have, like, you know, popped up in my movies. You've got but, the presence for it and you've got the well, voice for it. I appreciate you saying that. I, I haven't really acted much, though. Like me, I feel like me giving myself a small role in something that I'm making is not the same as actually acting. Yeah. Uh, like I was telling you before we were on the air, there was a, a doomed a one act I did in undergrad when I took a theater class. Yeah. I, I I had to act in because an actor dropped out two <laughs> oh weeks before uh, the end of the semester. That's awful. Uh, yeah, so once again, not like a great performance. I'm not. I'm sure, but uh, I'm not good at memorizing things. Okay, which seems like you you must be good at memorizing things. I it's yeah, I've gotten good at it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with actor Derek Silkman, star of Stuck on Neil, Endor, and the award-winning short The Headliner which is currently being developed into a feature that will be shot in Nebraska. Did you do uh, stand-up? No. No? No, I did not. But you, you seem like that would suit you. You know, I mean, yeah. when, when you play in the headliner, it's, it feels natural because you just you feel comfortable, it seems like. I know? was so nervous that day because <laughs> we did all that in one day except for the flashback scenes okay. in the short. And I was so nervous because um, I'd never done it before. Yeah. And I think I just I, – I remember telling myself that morning, just approach it like a scene. You're playing right. a scene and the audience is your scene partner. Yeah. You know, you just got to – because they're working with you, you know. So that's how I – approached it um i i tried to not 
dwell too much on the fact that I was doing stand-up for the first time because that, that intimidated me. Well, I mean, teaching is similar, too, in some ways. True, yeah. Are you a funny teacher? Uh, yeah, yeah. You seem like you would be. Yeah, I think so. I make them laugh yeah, from time to time. I feel like it's not a big jump. Right, yeah, except there's no pressure to be funny as the teacher. There's huge pressure to be funny as the stand-up. If you don't get a laugh, like, very soon into that set... It's over, you know. I remember I talked to a teacher about, uh, like, trouble students who just, you know, cause behavior issues in class. And he said that the biggest tip anyone ever told him about how to control a class is just to be funny. He said, if you're funny. They'll pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't really have that many issues. Right. And they like you. And they, you know, generally won't disrespect you too much, <laughs> hopefully, you know, yeah. if, if you if you get them to like you. Well, so okay. So let's go back to time here. So you... You're doing musicals, you're doing grad school. Were there any big roles that came up? Yeah. Um, well, right after I got done with my MA in English. In fact, while I was doing my MA in English, I started taking theater classes okay. um, at UNO. Okay, and yeah. I knocked out a good chunk of an MA in theater. And then as soon as I graduated with the English degree, I went right over to the theater department and got an MA in theater over there. Nice. So, yeah, the big role I got uh, at UNO would have been um, – Roy Cohn in Angels in America. That is a big role. Yes. Yeah. Were you? Was there some uh, like trepidation about a role like that, or you felt like, yeah, I can do this? I went for it. That was the one I wanted that semester. They were doing that, and they were doing Streetcar Named Desire, so they were mm-hmm. doing two huge um, um, American theater pieces. Right. Would have been great to be in either one of them, but I really wanted the Roy Cohn role. And I was a grad student, so I was a little bit older than most of the actors there, so it, it seemed like a good fit. Um, there were other people they were looking at for that role, but um, I was happy to get it. It's uh, one of the best roles that the American theaters produced, certainly in the last half of the 20th century anyway. You were happy with what you did with it? At the time, yeah. If I were, to, if I were able to do it again, I'm sure I'd play it differently. But at the time, I was very proud of it, yeah. And it went over well? Yeah. Yeah, that show got a lot of attention. It was the first. Uh, it was the first Nebraska production of Angels in America oh, wow. ever. So that was kind of a big yeah. deal. Yeah. So did that open up a lot of doors for you with either other local people looking for performers or just other gigs? Um, I d- I'm not sure if it did or not. I, I didn't like actively go out and do a lot of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're aware. There's not a whole lot of um, professional work right, yeah. in Omaha. And when I got done. Um, with graduate school and was kind of looking for that here, I tried to stay away from stuff that didn't pay. Right. Um, unless it was something I really, really wanted to do. And that's kind of the way I am now, too. If it, if it pays, I'll do it. <laughs> you know. Otherwise, it's got to be something I really, really want to do. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with Derek Silkman, star of Stuck on Neil, Endor, and the award-winning short film The Headliner, after this quick break. You probably know that Marie Antoinette never said, let them eat cake. But here's something she did say. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. As she was led to the guillotine, Marie Antoinette accidentally stepped on her executioner's foot. Those were her last words. The world is full of ill-fated love affairs, bad decisions, and family drama. But for a monarch, the personal will determine the fate of nations. When you're wearing a crown, mistakes tend to mean blood. I'm Dana Schwartz, and I'm the host of Noble Blood, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Each episode focuses on a single story from the life of one of history's most fascinating royals, from Marie Antoinette during her final days 
to the cockney butcher who had the world convinced that he might be a long-missing baronet. The tragic, the insane, the murdered, the murderers, and everyone in between. Noble Blood premieres on July 9th. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1907, three-year-old Dorothy Edie fell down a flight of stairs and was declared dead by the family doctor. An hour later, she was alive and completely uninjured. But she spoke with a strange foreign accent and she kept insisting that she wanted to go home to ancient Egypt. Ever since they were children, identical twins June and Jennifer Gibbons refused to speak to anyone except each other. They both believed that if one twin wanted to live a normal life and communicate with the world, the other would have to die. Then, at the age of 29, Jennifer died suddenly for no apparent reason. And a few days later, June said in clear English, I'm free at last. Jennifer has given up her life for me. I'm Ashley Flowers, host of the podcast Crime Junkie. There's nothing I love more than piecing together a good mystery. On my new show, Supernatural, I'm teaming up with ParCast to explore a different kind of cold case where the most fitting theory isn't the most rational one. Join me every Wednesday as I search for the truth about unexplained events from unsolved crimes to alien abductions. Supernatural with Ashley Flowers is a podcast original, and you can find it for free on Spotify. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I'm talking with Derek Silkman, star of Stuck on Neil, Endor, and the award-winning short film The Headliner, which is currently being developed into a feature that will be shot in Nebraska. Okay, so then you started teaching, right? I mean, professionally, like that just became your job was... Teaching English, right? At yeah. A certain point. Okay. Yeah. And so then the stage work, that's why it was basically like if it paid or if you were passionate about it, you sort of like had your antenna up for it, but it wasn't something you were actively pursuing for a while there? Well, I did leave teaching for a while because oh, okay. I wanted to do that. That was uh, that was during the time when I was working with uh, Nebraska Shakespeare. Okay. So, yeah, because when I was working with them, like particularly in the summer – and uh, we, they do a fall tour as well. That I, I'm, They still do, as a matter of fact. But when I had those contracts, it was a full-time job. Okay. So, um, you know, I was waiting tables at the time. I quit teaching and just waited tables. <laughs> and during those times, I just have to tell them I'm, I'm gone for, you know, six weeks. I'm gone for a couple months. I'll see you when I'm done. Right. Yeah, I can't do that as a teacher. <laughs> so, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so, okay, so that, you, you switched over, like you quit teaching specifically to have that sort of acting lifestyle again, yeah. have that flexibility. Mm-hmm. And so you did Shakespeare. How was that experience? Oh, it was great. Yeah. It was great. Being outside was a little bit brutal in July, <laughs> J- late June, early July, wearing all that um, Elizabethan garb. Right. You know, but. Would you say that, I mean, working with Shakespeare, did that change the way that you approached acting at all? I mean, to do it sort of that intensely and then actually get paid for it? Um, or was it just kind of like, well, it's the next role? Um, maybe. I, you know, I think what I got most out of that was that. Um, it's it's an equity program. I don't know how where you are of that, but not, it's not in any specific. Oh, it's, it's a union theater, so they have to bring in union actors to play, and they you know they have to pay them a lot, so they cast them in the bigger roles, the leads in the bigger roles. Um, but they bring them in from New York, they bring them in from Chicago and other places, and getting to work with people who have who have worked so much 
professionally, I think was really good for all of us um, who were uh, who were locals who had aspirations to go on and do it elsewhere. I think we learned a lot from them. Like their work ethic? Their work ethic, their approach to the text mm. um, was uh, I don't, just so creative, you know, and so... Um, I don't know. It, they were fun to watch, you know, and I think uh, just getting to be on the stage with them made all of us better. How long did you do that? About five years. Five years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. Isn't now, that, the summer shows they brought in the uh, the professional actors for from elsewhere, the tours they did not. Okay. Yeah. And so you were touring just around the country or? No, it was mostly the state. The state, okay. Yeah, and it was an educational tour. We would uh, go to schools. Oh, nice. And do shortened versions <laughs> of uh, whatever play we were doing that year. Did the kids uh, receive it well? Yeah, well, the first year I did it, we did Romeo and Juliet. And I think kids always, um, you know, there's a reason they tend to teach that as a staple to freshmen in high school because the leads are about that age. So then, I mean, after five years, were you ready for a change or did something else come up? I went back to teaching because the money just wasn't, you know, I was I was not making good money at all. And I was, you know, I was in my, uh, I think I was in my mid to late 30s at that point. And I was okay. like, I need a little more stability than I've got. And not that teaching pays a lot, but it, ta- <laughs> it pays more than waiting tables does. So... <laughs> I decided to go back to teaching. Okay. And so, was I mean, in some ways, though, there's got to be, like, a relief because it's easier to just teach than it is, I'm sure, to do a bunch of shows. I mean, there's that high intensity requires so much of you yeah. that it's like, okay, I can relax a little bit now. Right. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with actor Derek Silkman, star of Stuck on Neil, Endor, and the award-winning short film The Headliner, which is currently being developed into a feature that will be shot in Nebraska. So one of the first film roles the first real foray into film was bent over neil which eventually got re-edited into a movie called stuck on neil and then a web show called stuck uh let's hear a clip from bent over neil the first iteration and i think it made it into the other ones too i'm sure i'm breaking one of the rules here by saying this but i came out tonight because of my dad he was 60 and i remember thinking well that isn't young but it sure as hell isn't old in fact i'm 35 Based on that, my life is more than half over. I've been taking everything for granted. I've been holding off the rest of my life, and I recently realized that it's all my fault. When I'm not hanging out with my family, I'm just sitting here alone in my apartment, rotting. That was from Bent Over Neil, which was the first starring role for Derek Silkman in a film. Okay, so Bent Over Neil starts as the penis dialogues. Yep. Um, and you'd done it, you said the first time was, what, 2007-ish? Yeah. And then uh-huh. you started reviving it, and then somebody wanted to do a play version of it? Yeah, initially we wanted to do a full-length play, and I can't, I, I can't remember whose idea it was, but it's, it's somehow we transitioned from that to let's make a film. Who was the writer on that? Jeffrey, Jeffrey Steinblock. And did he, he doesn't still write plays or anything does he or i don't know i haven't talked to him in a long time so okay. uh hopefully he is i think he's good at it yeah yeah well because uh, the original play was essentially the first act of the movie right yeah uh-huh um and initially we did his version of it but i think um yeah we <laughs> it was so scattered like we filmed that while Andrew wrote the rest of it. Yeah. And, uh, oh, like you were filming and he was writing at the same time? Or? Yeah. Okay. Or we filmed that and then he wrote the rest. I, I can't remember, but I know the script wasn't done when we started filming. That's always a fun adventure. Yeah, so yeah. it was really disjointed and like that section didn't fit really well with the rest of the movie. So he adapted that campground scene, which was the 
um, which was the uh, first act of the film, you know, and I can't even remember what changes he made, but, you know, to make it flow a little bit more smoothly right. with the rest of the story. And so that movie, uh, Aaron Gum directed that one, yes. right? And so did you know him? Yeah, Aaron and I had been roommates okay. before. That's how we got him, actually. I was the one who approached him and asked him to do it. Because he's not really a movie guy, is he? In terms of, like, he he doesn't seem... Like, he, on his own, will just direct movies. Uh, like, I know he does music videos. Yeah, I, he hadn't done a feature before. I think he'd done a short or two okay. before that. But I'm pretty sure that was his first feature, yeah. yeah. And so it seems like it went pretty well. I mean, that's a, that's a, it doesn't look like a movie made by people who have no idea what they're doing. So you know. Right. Yeah, and it got into some festivals. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, for, for some guys who'd never done it before, I thought it came off pretty well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it was pretty successful in terms of just the amount of screenings you did, and it seems like people showed up for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so then that got recut as Stuck on Neil, and then now it's a web show. So, I mean, it's, it's had a life. Yes. <laughs> Indeed it has. <laughs> did, was that when, I mean, basically, so... Because that movie came out, did that sort of open up new avenues for you where you're thinking like, okay, it's very achievable for people to make movies on very low budgets. Maybe that's an avenue you'd want to explore more than theater or like coinciding with theater. That was never really something I thought about. Um, I met Tony Bonacci while we were filming that actually. Oh, really? Because, yeah, I met him through Aaron. Um, Aaron brought him on to do some Steadicam shots. Okay. Um, and if you go back and watch uh, uh, Ben Over Neil, there's one that I can think of. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I should describe it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah go <laughs> for, for it. People who haven't seen it. It's the one where um, the female lead, uh, uh, the wife, is in bed looking at pictures of her father who's passed away with her family. And there's this really pretty song by Jessica Eretz's band, Edge of Arbor, playing. And she gets up and walks down the stairs and into the living room. And Tony follows. It's a beautiful shot. Um, but that was where I met Tony, was he brought him on to do a couple Steadicam shots for that. Had Tony done – he'd been doing music videos at that point? He'd done some short films as short well. Films? Okay. Yeah. So Aaron just was in his orbit? I think so. In fact, I met – well, actually, I met Tony during our first production meeting because we met at Jake's and Tony came – I rem- both Tony and I remember this. Um, Tony came in and Aaron called him over to say hi and he said, Derek, this is somebody you should probably meet. So, and he <laughs> yeah. was right. That was, was the beginning. I should have met. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so did you guys get along in the sense that you were like, I'd like to work with him? With Tony? Yeah, with Tony. Yeah. Um, Tony called me – Ah, I believe it was, it was actually while we were viewing the first cut of Ben Over Neil, he sent me a text and said, hey, do you, do you still want to act? I want to put you in one of my shorts. I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, he seemed like somebody I wanted to work with. That's got to be a nice feeling. You're like, okay, I clearly inspired him in some way or he can see me, you know, working with his voice. Oh yeah, I was happy that he wanted to work with me. You did Endor, but do you even have any lines in Endor? I had no lines in Endor. What was that? Seems like that must have been a weird pivot from everything else you've ever done. It was a cool challenge. Yeah. I liked um, having that big of a role without getting to getting to rely on dialogue or the voice or anything. It was took a, me, I think, half of that movie to realize it was you. Uh, I've been told that, yeah, because of that wig. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> you just like have that scowl the whole movie. Yeah, like, who is that? Do I know that guy? You're like, oh my god, it's Derek Silkman. I had people who knew me who didn't know that was me. <laughs> <laughs> which was cool. Yeah, well, so, I mean, playing a silent serial killer, or not serial killer, even like a demon, demonic killer guy. Yeah. That, that must have been, I mean, how do you even approach a role like that? 
Um, I think with that one, I kind of let the costume inform it. You know, once I got everything on, it was like, okay, this is how he moves. This is how he, um, you know, this is how he stalks. This is how he um, behaves, you know. Well, like you had to turn off the affable, you know, uh, affect that you have generally. You, know, you had to turn way- off the voice, too. Everything, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's almost it's casting entirely against your type, I would think. Yeah, well, it depends on how you look at it, because in the theater, I always played the bad guy. So in that okay, respect, yeah. it wasn't at all. Like, it was right in line with the kind of stuff that I'd normally do. But usually I got cast as the bad guy because of the voice and because of my height, I think. This time um, it was just the height, Just the height, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then after Endor, what were things looking like in terms of acting? I'm trying to think. The headliner, the funny thing about the headliners, Tony approached me about that. Um, right after we got back from New York, um, Ben O'Neill got into a comedy uh, a, a comedy festival mm-hmm. in uh, Kingston, New York. And when I say a comedy festival, it wasn't just a film festival. It was stand-up comics plus comedic oh, wow. films. It was really awesome. But it was as soon as we got back from that, because I think when we got back from that, that was when I was ready to kind of say goodbye to that project. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, that's the festival circuit. Um I'm just going to kind of, you know, like you were saying earlier, just kind of take a break. And I think it wasn't it wasn't even a week later, Tony uh, asked me to go get a drink with him. And he pitched the headliner to me and he said, I want you to he told me what he wanted the story to be about. He didn't even have a writer. I don't think he'd even brought on Christine yet. Um, but he said, I want you to play the lead. And I said, yes, immediately. And did he have the whole arc of it or was it just sort of like some basic elements? Basic elements and basic themes, Okay, I think. And so part of it, I'm sure, was you're going to play a stand-up comedian. Yes. Uh, and was that intimidating to you initially, just in the pitch? Yes, but it was that intimidation that attracted me to it. It was yeah. the challenge, you know, something I haven't done before. Um, Here's a clip from the headliner. A short film directed by Tony Bonacci in which my guest Derek Silkman plays a stand-up comedian. When did we decide that restaurants had become so complicated that we needed instructions on how to order? You ever go into a place, you sit down and they say, have you been here before? <laughs> and then they proceed to tell you how to eat <laughs> in a restaurant? <laughs> Whenever I sit down and they ask me, have you been here before? I always say no. But I have been to college, so I think I can figure out a menu with different kinds of fish on it. But I would like someone to cut up my food into tiny pieces for me so I don't choke! Thank you very much, folks. I'm Chad Allen Nielsen. Enjoy the rest of the show. You play it in a way that seems very effortless. I mean, it, it, in, when you like, and you watch the short, I would not have guessed that that would have been something that was scary to you. It sounds like that would be almost easier than Endor, where you have to scowl for an hour and a half. <laughs> when we got, you know, the nice thing that day was they did the close-ups first of um, our stand-up bits, so they left the audience out. Okay. Out, out in the bar area, because we shot that at, uh, at uh, Reverb in Benson. You mean like when they shot the close-ups, there was nobody in the audience? There was nobody okay. in the audience. So we all got to run through our material several times before they brought them in, which was nice. Because right. if, if the whole audience had been there, it might have freaked me out a little bit more than it did. I got to get up on stage in the space that we were going to do it with the mic and uh, run through it a few times while they shot the close-ups. Did, uh, I mean... Did the audience have to laugh, though? I mean, they're still in the movie, so I assume. I think they let it kind of happen organically the first time, but then every time we did a take, they'd say, okay, you know, give try to give the same response you did last time. Okay. You know. So, so. if you didn't think it was funny the first time, you can still not laugh. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> but it had to stay consistent, you know. Yeah, right. So um, 
And so, uh, who? Because Tony and Christine both didn't write the jokes on that one, though, did they? Didn't, wasn't there somebody else who came in? Well, the other two comedians wrote their own material. Okay. Um, Shelby and Bruce both, both wrote their own, um, but I didn't even want to try that. I was like, I, you know, this guy's supposed to be a good comedian, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> try to write my own material when I've never even done it before. And he said, "Well, I'll find somebody to do it." So he got Zach Peterson. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Who uh, I believe he lives in Omaha again yeah, now. At the time, cool. he was living in. Sh- Either Chicago or L.A. I can't remember which. Um, but, yeah, he gave, he gave me some good material to work with. And I, I did have to do a little writing because I had to kind of, like, string the bits together. He sent several bits. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do this all together, I do have to, you know, transition from one to the other. So I did a little bit of writing, but not much. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting that Tony seems to be aware of all the gaps where it would be better to have somebody else come in and do something. Where it's like, I mean, because like the, the, there's sort of the myth that everybody wants to be an auteur, where it's like, I want to have complete control over absolutely everything. I want to write, I want to direct, edit, shoot, etc. He, he seems open to like, eh, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do a better job than that guy. He's good about bringing people on to collaborate with. I think um, it's funny because Aaron wanted to do like everything. <laughs> you know, there wasn't much of a crew when we worked with Aaron. I think Aaron might be a little bit like that. Aaron doesn't write right, or anything yeah. like that. But when it comes to like the shots and stuff, he's, he's, he's his own cinematographer. Right. He's, I think if he could do sound, he would. <laughs> he, would he act if he could too? He has. has he, he? Was, he was in Ben Over Neal. Oh, that's he, he has a small partner, right? Yeah, and, then, and he was an indoor too. Well, t- Tony seems relaxed, I guess, and that yeah. that seems maybe unusual among directors, uh, especially like when you're working with a low budget uh, in Omaha. Anyway, it's very easy to get stressed out about everything that will go wrong because it just there's all will. those headaches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't know what he's like on set, but just talking with him, he seems very, you know, like calm, relaxed. Like we'll figure it out. He is the same way on set that he is in in when you're just hanging out. So, that's got to be helpful, I yeah. guess. I, I, I guess what I mean by that is I'm sure on my set, my cast and crew can sense that I'm frustrated or stressed to some extent. Not that I'm, like, yelling at them, but I don't think I have the calm composure of Tony Bonacci. <laughs> and maybe I should. Maybe I should you, aspire to that. You seem like somebody who would have that. Usually what I do on set is I'm just like, where's my coffee? Where did I put it? <laughs> You'll have to put me in one of your films so I can tell you. I'd you know? love to. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to. Yeah, it'd be fun. Um, so the headliner, what year did that actually premiere? Uh, it was about. I think it was two years ago. Okay, right around Thanksgiving, we did a uh, just did a screening at Reverb that was kind of invite only. That's right. And that was uh, 2018. Is when that came out, or when that premiere was? Uh, I want to say it was 17. 17. Okay, and then yeah, it was 17. It played at a lot of festivals, didn't it? Or it, I mean, it had a lot of buzz around it for some reason. Locally, it did. It, well, it played at the Omaha Film Festival, of course, and right. it also played at the uh, the uh, showcase, the Filmstream showcase. Oh, that's right. At the Dundee yeah. location, which was cool to get to watch it there. That must have been exciting. That was cool, yeah. yeah. I feel like they don't let a lot of comedies in. I mean, I mean yours is, it's got dramatic elements, too. But Yeah, the the short is pretty heavy, yeah. actually. It, um, like I, I think of it as a comedy just because he's a headliner. Right. You know, but... Yeah, I guess that's true. The, the feature will be more of a comedy than the short was. I think when I talked to Tony, he said he was trying to design it as kind of like a buddy road movie. 
Is that still where it en- is ending up? Yeah, yeah, okay. to a certain extent. Um, that's that's certainly one of the elements of the uh, of the story. It's also it also explores the main character's uh, relationship with his daughter. He's got a daughter in the feature who is uh, in college. Okay. Um, so she's an adult. You know this this daughter that he was never really around for, but doesn't have like a. There's not a lot of tension there. Right. But it's also not a normal relationship that he has with this grown daughter of his and his relationship with his ex-wife right um which yeah there, there's some really interesting stuff there it sounded almost like the short just in developing it got a lot darker or more serious than tony originally intended i think so when tony first approached me about it he didn't approach me about a short he approached me about the he wanted me to be in his first feature was oh what okay he said um, I think the short came later. He was like, I think maybe I should make a short before I make the feature. Um, so it's interesting. He talked to me about this back in 2016, and here we are four years later just now getting ready to shoot the feature. That must have been very helpful for everybody, though. I, mean, I think so. Yeah. Well, and he it was good for him, I think, because he realized what he didn't want the uh, the feature to be. You know, he didn't want it to be this kind of dark, heavy and not that the feature doesn't have some gravity, it does, but it doesn't have nearly as much as the short did. The short was heavy duty. It's well, it's it's almost it's funny too because I feel like the heaviness in some ways has done a lot for the short. Right, I like it. It yeah. packs that punch, and yeah. obviously it's been you know well received by pretty much everybody. Yeah, uh, and his reaction is, well, yeah, not we're not going to go that way. We're going to do something different. <laughs> yeah, which maybe I mean in a short, it's, it's a different dynamic of the sort of impact it can have in you know fifteen minutes versus ninety. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's true. I think I think what what uh, I think that kind of pulling the the uh, tone in two completely different directions, like we did in the short, works probably better in a in a in a shorter span of time. Right. That that would be hard to achieve in a in a hour and a half long feature. I think. I agree. I trust Tony. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not doubting him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like the short too. I'm not putting it down. I love the short. Yeah. I love it. Is that one of the things you're most proud of as an actor? Uh, as far as film goes, yeah. What about on the stage? That would be Angels in America that we, we yeah. talked a little bit about earlier. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Do you still do any stage work? I, you know, the only stuff I've done is actually the person who directed Angels in America. Her name is Cindy Faniff. She's the uh, she's one of the senior faculty members in the theater department at UNO. Um, anytime she asks me to do something, I'll do it if I can. Um, the last few things I've done with her have just been readings, though. At the uh, well, actually, I did a show, uh, one of the main stage shows at uh, at the. Uh, I was trying to think of the name of it earlier. The we, Great Plains. The Great Plains. Yeah. yeah, I did a show back in twenty, probably around twenty thirteen as well. I had a small part in it, but I did a show with her there. I did a reading with her there just a couple years ago, and. Um, Another thing that I got to do with her that was really cool, um, uh, just a little over a year ago, it was around Halloween, um, there was a joint thing that they were doing at UNO between the, um, I want to say the symphony, but they don't call it the symphony, it's the orchestra, the student orchestra (laughs) in the music department, and the theater department, they were doing like this Halloween program. And uh, she asked me to come up and do a reading of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Oh, yeah. And during the last, like, uh, probably fourth of it, the orchestra played behind me. And it was it was really cool. <laughs> it was cool. That's got you've, – you've got a good voice for that, definitely. I mean, uh, to go deep, I'm sure, is helpful with Poe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Shakespeare as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, do you still crave stage work, or at this point is it just easier to work in film media? I do. I hope I can do it again sometime. It's difficult because at Metro I tend to teach during the evening. I try to keep, like, because I teach at several different schools. I teach there, I teach at Creighton, and I teach at Bellevue, and I try to make sure that there's, I mean, I can't have overlap, but I also want to teach as many classes as I can. So generally at Metro, I do those classes in the evening so that there's no chance they'll conflict with the other ones. So that takes away two nights a week. And if you're wanting to do theater, it's really hard to to do anything where you can't be there five or six nights a week. Film is kind of the opposite direction where it's like, you know, you said you shot, was the headliner a two-day shoot ultimately? For the most part, it was one. For the flashbacks, I think we did that in a two-hour shoot. Um, it's crazy. A couple I mean, weeks later, yeah. That's it's weird about film as a medium where there's just so much pressure to get everything you need in a very very short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, both in terms of performance, in terms of production, everything. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, like you go from a play. I mean, like do you, do you guys rehearse? Uh, do you and Tony rehearse? Uh, the headliner we did like they called it rehearsal where they said let's get everybody together we just kind of ran through lines and stuff yeah, i think that's more normal with film yeah. productions yeah but uh, no there was no let's get up on our feet and figure out like how how the physical shape of this scene or anything like that what's what it's weird because like you know obviously with the play you're not figuring it out as you're performing so much i mean you want to have figured it out i assume ahead of time oh yeah um yeah. but like you know with a film yeah it's like even though you know you have very like way too short of an amount of time probably uh to figure this out you still are like yeah well you know we'll play with it on set we'll right. get there you know it'll be fine yeah and it's just hectic and it's like this race but uh i mean th- does the pressure of that change your acting style at all maybe maybe it did um i i I mean, they're two totally different approaches because in right. the theater you spend like you know three weeks minimum rehearsing this play. That's what I mean. You, know, where it's you do a lot of on. scene work, and it probably does. You probably, I mean, I I think on film you just by nature have to let things happen organically, and you try to do that in the theater and the rehearsal process too. But when you find something that works, you got to try to keep repeating it. Right. You know, and on film, I think once you capture it, you got it. You know, you might have to repeat it in another take or two, but um. Yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're totally different. Um, it took me a while to get to the point where um, I felt like what I was doing on film worked too, because I was used to, you know, acting with size, as we call it in the theater. And you have the ability to be loud. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I there I tend to have to almost whisper when uh, when I'm doing film work because you know got, you got the mic right there, it's picking up everything that you do. So I have to pull it way. I can't talk at my normal. Um, volume. I have to pull it back. They tell me it's too loud. I appreciate for this radio interview that you project a little bit. Some people, <laughs> okay, are, good. Some people are very quiet. Yeah. You're like, okay, I'm turning this all the way up. Uh, I don't have to try to project <laughs> at all. So That's good as a teacher, too, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. So, okay, so the headliner feature is the next project for you? Yes. Well, okay. And is it a multi-city shoot? Primarily, it's Omaha, but we're also going to be shooting, I believe, in Lawrence, Kansas. I think we're going to be shooting in some in Kansas City, and I think we're also going to be shooting in Chicago. So that's complicated. <laughs> yeah, those are going to be quick trips, according yeah. to Tony, though. He said, well, you know, those are going to be run and gun. I don't think we're going to take a full crew up for those. Yeah. You know, he wants to kind of keep it very minimal um, as far as production goes on those. So. Okay, and so... You guys have a script that you're mostly happy with. You basically know what the project is going to be. Yeah. Are you guys, uh, are you seeking funding or what's the current stage of it? 
Uh, Tony is doing some of that. I know he's got some funding in place already. Luckily, I'm not a producer on this, so I don't have to worry about that at all. Um, you just show up and say the lines. show up and act, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> say the lines and do the stand-up bits. Whisper yeah. right, into the whisper mic. Whisper into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're happy with all of it? Yeah. Is yeah, there it's... more of a cast already, or is it not quite there yet? No, I don't think Tony's cast anybody yet, aside from uh, me and Bruce. Okay. So, yeah. It's an adventure. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what his plan is for that either. I haven't. We haven't talked a lot about that. So, <laughs> not that he doesn't have a plan. No, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know where he's. Uh, I don't know where he's going with that. So it's it's nice that you trust him so much. Yeah. You know, clearly, there's no. It's it's yielded good results so far. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. He should do some behind the scenes videos of his just zen demeanor on set. I'd love to watch it. Watch he him in action. You know, we have some of those oh, really? from uh, from the short. You should ask him for those. <laughs> I should have when him, I talk to him. He'll probably he'll send them to you. Probably. Probably, <laughs> if you ask him for them. All right, I will. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. You can check out Derek Silkman's work, including the headliner on YouTube. It's worth watching. It's a great short. Check it out. We'll be back next week with a conversation with Amy Bonafons, an author. I'm Tom Noblock. Thank you for listening.